Be seated. Richard Cohen, the author, notes, we, the injured, are everywhere. Good Friday reminds us that this world is broken. It makes sense of the reality of sin, that God won't sweep it under the rug and act like it's not there. But don't, nor does God come in judgment for us. He does not come to point the finger, but instead He takes that judgment. He becomes that brokenness. He becomes that sin, taking it into Himself and vanquishing its power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we remember the anguish that You took upon Yourself on Golgotha so many years ago, our hearts and minds are filled with the realization of our own sin and our own brokenness. We deserve that sentence. Yet because of Your great love, You received God's holy wrath and turned away His judgment. We pray that You would forgive us, even again, for how the cross fails to stun us, awaken us to the depths of Your grace and the cost of Your suffering. And not only, O Lord, would You do that in our lives, but would You awaken the world to the truth and hope that is in the cross. We see a world torn asunder, bloodshed in the Middle East, just recently, days ago, in Kenya, Africa. We remember our brothers and sisters at Garissa University targeted because of their faith. May their blood speak. May it speak grace and hope to the world, even as it reflects Your work on the cross. Oh, Lord God, we long for the work that was finished on the cross to bring its full fruit to this land. Might Your grace and life cover this land as the waters cover the sea. And so, Holy Father, we pray that You would help us to follow You, Jesus, to the cross. Help us to take up our crosses, those that You bring into our lives, trusting that the way up is the way down so that we might show a broken and hurting and injured world that there is one who was injured for us, broken for us, judged for us, that in him we might have life evermore with you. For it is in your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. It really is a remarkable thing that Jesus, the Son of God, the agent of the creation of the entire world would put the fate, his own fate, into the hands of an angry crowd. You know, the crowd that on Sunday had called out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed, be the, blessed is the name, one who comes in the name of the Lord. But on Friday, that same crowd was yelling out, crucify him. There was something about Jesus that drew them into Him, and yet something that repulsed them as well. Something that, that pushed Him away from them. You know, the funny thing is, I get the crowd. 
I get how they could have this fickle nature, how there could be things about them that were so contrary. They were attracted to Jesus, and yes, they pushed Him away. The crowd is easy to jump on, and many sermons have jumped on the crowd. But you remember who they were, right? You remember that on Thursday night, Judas came to the chief priests, and he came to betray Jesus. And as soon as Judas had come, the plot to destroy Jesus went into full effect. They sent out soldiers to go arrest Jesus in the garden. They went and gathered all of the elders to come for a midnight trial in front of the rest of the chief priests. And then they went and gathered a crowd in the midnight hours, a passionate crowd, one that they knew would be supportive of everything that they were trying to do to bolster their case once they made it to Pilate, the local Roman governor. And so the crowd was gathered. And when we reach in Jesus' trial, the climactic point of Jesus coming before Pilate, Jesus has already been accused. He's already been accused of being a blasphemer. But Pilate doesn't really care about that, does he? He doesn't really care about the internal theological squabbles of the local Jewish leaders. Jesus has by this point been accused also of being an insurrectionist. But Pilate just has to look at him and talk to him to realize how false that is. This mild-mannered rabbi isn't one who's going to go out and start a rebellion against Rome. He doesn't buy that. He knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he's stuck. He's stuck because he has this crowd yelling at him. And he's baffled by it. What does the crowd really want? So he comes up with a scheme. I'm going to give amnesty to one man, either Jesus or to Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer and a true insurrectionist. Barabbas was actually guilty of all the things that they were accusing Jesus of. He sets that before them knowing that this, the choice is easy for them. This is the way out for the crowd. The crowd had made their point. Jesus, we don't like you. You're taking away our authority. You're undercutting what we're trying to do. You need to, you need to leave town. You need to beat it. But they didn't have to go all the way to a needless murder. Pilate thought he was giving them a way to save face and yet also retain the appearance of being, of having a sense of justice. Pilate thought it was the perfect plan. But the crowd called out for Barabbas. Why would they do that? Why did they want Barabbas? What was it about Barabbas that, that captured their imagination? I mean, he, Barabbas represented the status quo, didn't he? He was a, he was a known quantity. Despite his, his violent reputation, he was actually the safe choice. You know, he was a revolutionary hero. He was kind of like the Robin Hood with a dark side. We get that kind of hero, don't we? We like those kind of heroes. We like the Jason Bournes and the Batman the Dark Knight and the new James Bond. We might even throw Katniss Everdeen into that list. We want our heroes to have an edge. We want them to be able to actually get something accomplished when we put them to a task. And that's what Barabbas was. Barabbas, Barabbas was somebody who would defend the, the identity of the people of Israel. He would defend their freedom against Rome, and he would do it by whatever means were necessary. Walter Wangren is a wonderful author. We have some books of his on our 
on our book table, he says it this way, that the crowd voluntarily chose entertainment over worship, self-satisfaction over sacrificial love, getting things over giving things, being served over serving. They chose feeling good about themselves and having it all and gaining the whole world and rubbing elbows with the rich rather than rubbing the wounds of the poor. You know, the crowd admired Jesus' kindness and His humility and His love for the weak and for the oppressed on Sunday. But by the time Friday rolled around, they'd made a different decision instead. They they'd chose to believe that Jesus was just too risky for them. He upturned all the order that they were accustomed to. He, he got in the face of all of the authorities that could make trouble for them. He was too risky. His, his ways were just too radical. You never knew what Jesus was going to do. He might go take all the money and go give it to the poor. You know? You don't know what Jesus is going to do. He might just decide that the people who are in power right now shouldn't be in power anymore. Jesus was just too radical. He was, his call for service was too demanding. That Jesus' life was not the kind of life that they really wanted to live. They wanted a hero who would give them safety. They wanted a hero that would give them a sense of control, a sense of ease in life, that he would answer what they really wanted out of life. And you know what? I get the crowd. I get that desire. That's what I want out of a hero so much of the time. I mean, do you understand the choice that the crowd, the dilemma that they were faced with in choosing between Jesus and Barabbas? Do your longings for safety, for control, for a life that's just easy here in America, and probably the desire for a thousand other things. Are those the things, those desires, are they actually the things that get in the way of you actually following and loving Jesus the way that the Scriptures call you to? Of course Jesus is attractive in some sense, right? Of course we all like Jesus a little bit. If you're a non-Christian and you're here, first of all, we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming. But secondly... You know, I, I would be hard-pressed to imagine that you don't like some of the things about Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. But it's that our desires want more than what Jesus is offering. They want different things than what Jesus is offering. Oftentimes, the thing that makes us not want to believe is that we've got all these other agenda items that Jesus doesn't seem to answer very well. The crowd presents all of us with this dilemma. Do we really want what Jesus is offering? Do we really want this Jesus? You know, you have to be able to see yourself in the dilemma that this crowd is faced with if you are going to appreciate the power and the significance of Good Friday. The power and the significance of the cross itself. You know who experienced that? Peter. Peter got this dilemma, right? Peter followed Jesus as he was arrested. He he found himself in the courtyard. He knew where this story was headed. And he turned his back on Jesus. He denied Him, not once, but three times. And it was Jesus' look that ultimately destroyed Peter. And yet, 
Two months later, at the, at, the, at the celebration of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he preaches to crowds of hundreds, maybe even thousands, very few, if any of whom, were actually in the crowd that day that cried out, crucify. And you know what he said to them? He said, this Jesus whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says that they are the ones that killed Jesus. It was their rebellion. It was the rebellion that is in the heart of every human. That is a part of our common humanity. That our desires want something other than what Jesus is giving us. Want something other than what God has provided for us. It is that that killed Jesus. What Peter says is that you were part of that crowd. That I was part of that crowd. That all of us were. The crowd was us. It was me. It was you. That that has been part of the Christian identity for centuries. That we were there. A great writer in the 19th century named Horatius Bonar put it this way, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed Him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one, and in the din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see mocking the sufferers groan, and yet still my voice, it seems to me as if I mocked alone. Boy, I get the crowd. But Jesus got the crowd as well. He saw them. He knew them. He understood exactly the dilemma that they were faced with. And He did something about it. In fact, He did three things about it, briefly. In the same way that us, that we, by our common nature, are complicit with the crowd... Jesus, by His incarnation, by the fact that He came from heaven, He took flesh upon Himself, He made Himself complicit with the crowd as well. He he became their representative. That's the first thing. He, He became their representative. He took their sin upon Himself. He took their nature. He took every temptation that was To the crowd, He took it upon Himself. Everything that we face in life, He took on perfectly. He was our representative. But the crowd didn't get it, did they? They didn't understand that that's what was happening. In fact, Peter acknowledges that in his same sermon at Pentecost. He says that the crowd didn't know the consequences. They were blinded by their own sin, by their own desires, but what they wanted out of this circumstance, that they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea that they were sacrificing the Son of God. They were too foolish to see that. They were blinded by their own desires to see the treachery that was being committed. Peter says that they didn't have any idea. And yet, amazingly, Jesus places Himself into their hands. He puts His fate into their decision. Who are they going to choose? Jesus allows Himself to be sent to the cross by their rebellion, by their betrayal of Him, by their brutal 
calling down crucifixion on him. Jesus allows himself, and in doing so, he becomes a a sacrificial offering from them. Unbeknownst to them, he becomes an offering for their sin. That was the second thing. Not only is he their representative, but he's their substitute. He substitutes himself for them. Before God. He became before God the substitute for them so that God could pour out His hatred upon the sin and the evil in the world that we experience. He could pour it out on Christ. Taking the full punishment for each one of us. He's our representative. He's our substitute. And despite their rejection of Him, despite their hatred of Him, despite their rebelliousness, He loved them in that moment. As he's being nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers, he prays out loud to God the Father for everyone to hear, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Forgive these soldiers. Forgive this crowd. Forgive me. Forgive you. Forgive all of them. Jesus knew the crowd. He knew the place that they were. He knows us. And in giving Himself as as our representative, as our substitute before God, as the one who loves us, He chose to give up the safety the control, the ease. He chose to give up all the things that the crowd was so desperate to gain for themselves. Everything that the crowd wanted out of life, he chose to give up in that moment. He chose to sacrifice it. He chose to take on for them all that they actually needed. It's so ironic that the crowd thought that they were solving their problem by destroying Jesus. They thought they were going to gain for themselves the kind of control and and the kind of life that they wanted to have. And what Jesus was doing is by going to the cross, He actually came and destroyed everything, all of the power of sin and death that was actually blinding them. The irony is incredible. The mystery of the cross is incredible. By Jesus' coming and dying and suffering, He actually took on Himself the sin and the brokenness of this world that we live in. And by doing so, He destroyed its power. The stronghold of sin that had so blinded that crowd and that so blinds you and me so gets in the way of us following Him, of us loving Him, of us knowing Him, He has destroyed its power. He's removed from it its consequence. He's taken upon Himself the stronghold, the stranglehold of sin and death in the world. It's amazing that his cry at the very end was, it is finished. Everything we wanted out of Barabbas, Jesus has given us that and more. In our ignorance, he's given us life. In our rebellion, he's given us hope. In our sin, he's given us life by his own death. 
We sang the song last night, but I have to close by, by quoting it for you. Most of you will know this song. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Amen. Let us pray. It is finished, Father. It is finished because of Your suffering. Giving up of Your Son and pouring out Your wrath upon sin directly upon His shoulders. And each of us were there calling out to crucify Him. Father, we had no idea what we were doing and yet You did. You knew exactly what the, where the crowd was and who the crowd was and exactly what we needed and You provided it for us by giving us Your Son. Let us see Him. Let us know Him. We pray in His name. Amen.